Welcome to the ISIS podcast. Today we're speaking to Judith Matlock, a journalist of over 40 years. She's worked in Rwanda, Angola, Mexico, and Russia. Her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Forbes, the Financial Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Daily Beast. Judith now teaches crisis reporting at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. Her new book, How to Drag a Body and Other Survival Skills You Hope to Never Need, is a great example of Judith's dedication to safety training for women and media organizations. Welcome, Judith. I'd like to start kind of at the beginning of your career. I just wanted to know what drove you to pursue a career in conflict reporting. Yeah. Um, actually, I had no intentions of covering conflict, and um, it certainly was not my choice. <laughs> but what happens is when you're a foreign correspondent, as I ha- was for more than 20 years, Um, at some point you're going to run into violence and you're going to have to cover it. And what happened is I started my career in Mexico during a very tumultuous time in the 1980s when Central America was really blowing up with civil, you know, um, wars and whatnot and insurrections. Then I moved on to Europe, um, where things were a little bit calmer, but I still, I had to cover, there was a guerrilla movement in Portugal, there was a guerrilla movement um, Eta in Spain, there was Northern Ireland, and it was just part of my job. And then when I was posted to Africa um, in the early 90s, obviously Africa was really in quite a, you know, it was quite conflict-ridden. We had the Rwanda genocide, we had nearly civil war in South Africa, we had civil war in Mozambique and Sudan, and. Um, Angola and Liberia and Sierra Leone. So I just had to cover it um, because that was part of my job. And what was the key point in that time when safety training really became something that you wanted to focus on? Yeah, okay. What you have to realize is the safety training industry um, and sector is really only 15 years old at most. So when I was working in the 1980s and the 1990s, and even the beginning of the aughts, there was no safety training. Your boss would uh, send you out, uh, suggest you buy a bottle of whiskey at the airport and would say, good luck. We weren't given uh, flak jackets. We weren't told how to navigate uh, violent crowds like the ones that um, stormed the Capitol. We, we didn't know how to take cover when there was fire. You just learned on the job and um, oftentimes were killed or injured or maimed or raped. And um, there, But there was one moment, really a pivotal moment, when I began to think, I didn't think that, I wasn't thinking consciously we need safety training, but I was thinking we certainly need some form of more formalized um, preparation. And that's when I was sent to Angola to cover what were supposed to be free elections. And suddenly the, the person who lost, this is gonna sound very familiar to Americans, 
the person who lost did not accept the terms of the, you know, the, the results of the election, and he went back to war. That was Jonas Savimbi. And suddenly there was fighting all around me, and his organization, um, actually his number two, um, put out a death threat against me. And um, my government, the United States, did not have diplomatic ties with Angola, so there was no embassy that could evacuate me. And in any event, I couldn't be evacuated because there was fighting at the airport and the roads were landmined. So I was stuck in this place where my life was, I was actually targeted personally by somebody in person and um, fighting all around me. I didn't know anything about how you deal with snipers or what you do when there's a car bomb and fighting right outside your hotel. And I began to think then we really have to do this in a more intelligent way. As you were saying, like you discovered that, you know, life as a journalist can be, you know, life threatening. So oh, how, totally. did, yeah. how did that like <laughs> impact your, you know, your well-being? And did you sort of like, were you traumatized? Like how long did it take for you to sort of take action? Well, I was covering violence in such a relentless way. I mean, for six years I was in Africa and all I did was cover violence for the most part. I mean, I did cover political stories like the transition from the negotiated transition from apartheid to um, to um, allowing blacks to vote and black majority rule. But for the most part, I was bouncing from riots to wars, to militias, to uh, street fighting. Um, I mean, that's really so much of what my job was then, what my boss then called chasing ambulances. And, um, you know, obviously it had a profound effect on me um, in terms of, first of all, my outlook on the world of thinking about humanity. And second of all, yeah, I mean, you do, you do get emotionally impacted by that. I don't know anybody who isn't, but um, you know, you come to terms with it. And eventually what happened, one of the reasons why my husband, my now husband, and I decided to move back to the States in the year 2000 was that we had been covering so much violence and so much turmoil and so much repression by state authorities and whatnot that we just really felt we needed a break and we needed to go back to a more normal society. Um, having said that, <laughs> then a year later, 9-11 uh, happened and look what's happening now <laughs> in the state capital. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, you know, it's cumulative. You're covering violence all the time and it's cumulative. It takes a while. I mean, obviously the Angola thing really shook me up. But cumulatively, other things, you know, built up into a kind of an emotional boil. But, you know, you, you deal with it and you get over it. I find it really, really interesting what you're talking about, this intersect between your physical safety and also your emotional well-being. And I was wondering, as you develop these safety training programs, if educating people on how to recover from that kind of emotional impact is ever something that you incorporate into your, into your curriculum? It's paramount. It's absolutely paramount. As a matter of fact, in a couple of days, I'll be doing a, a webinar training with some journalists in Belarus dealing specifically with that. I'm the senior safety advisor of a group called the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, and their mission is to raise awareness about the trauma and the emotional distress that can result from covering violent and, um, and um, tumultuous events 
and how to deal with it and how to give peer support. So it's, it's absolutely central, absolutely central, because the thing is, a journalist who is very, very distressed is not necessarily going to make good decisions. And it's absolutely critical for a newsroom to work as a team and support each other through what are very difficult circumstances. And so if you want to be effective as a news gatherer and chronicler, you need to be as emotionally sound and able to process what you're observing. I was just wondering, because it seems like there's kind of this like sense of community um, with you and your fellow journalists. I was just wondering like what you've sort of experienced the general response to be with your emphasis on safety training, like how that's been received by maybe other, you know, of your co colleagues who've been in the field for a lot of years. People are desperate for safety training. As a matter of fact, I just got two more requests this morning. One to work with uh, reporters who are based in the Capitol and um, in, in Washington, D.C., who will be covering the inauguration, if it even happens. And then I got, an, it's, again, these were just two requests this morning. And then I got another request to do a webinar that will be widely distributed throughout the entire press corps. Um, people, you know, journalists are very, it's really interesting. I mean, I've worked in, I don't know, like scores and scores of companies of countries and there's a camaraderie that journalists have with each other no matter what nation it is and no matter um, what, um, what city they're in. It, we're kind of like a tribe in a way and we care deeply about each other and there's a sense that we're all in this together. And of course, you know, with the polarization of the country politically, you are gonna have a divide between what is perceived as right-wing media and left-wing or liberal. But for the most part, journalists are in it together and they see each other as one big family and they work together. And people really, really, really welcome training and they really, really welcome resources that they can turn to. And I think that's never been more important in, in America than now with, with the, you know, the most recent events and the ones that we fear will be happening in a week. But, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is like when you work in a war zone, as I have, um, it, competition just drifts away. People don't compete against each other. They watch each other's backs and make sure that they're well and that they're safe and they're secure. And it's, it's very unique. Um, you know, I've been in, situations where journalists have even shared their photographs with each other because one of them missed a photograph. Um, that may not be considered, you know, um, totally kosher from a, a competitive organizational point of view, but, but journalists really, you know, they help each other and they care about each other. And part of it is that, you know, we're attacked by the public and by politicians so much. So that draws us closer. You know, we're never fully safe you know, a source will get angry at you. Somebody who doesn't agree with you will write an angry letter or threaten you or dox you. So, you know, we're, we're keenly aware that we have to watch each other's backs because wider society isn't. With that, that idea of wider society isn't watching your backs, this is kind of maybe a bit of a political question, but how, as a journalistic community, are you reacting to the not necessarily new, but the heightened distrust of the media. Has that affected your safety in places like the States where now there's this really big rhetoric of fake news? It hasn't affected mine because I'm 
largely a trainer and, and a professor and an author at this point. So I haven't been out in the field. And the reporting that I've done for the Daily Beast um, over during the course of the pandemic has been very pandemic oriented. I think I've only written one piece that could be seen as um, explicitly political that dealt with militias. Um, so I myself have not been targeted. Um, I get really angry um, emails and you know letters and um, comments, you know, Twitter comments, but I haven't been targeted, but without a doubt, many, many colleagues have. They've gotten death threats, they've gotten rape threats, they were beaten, um, you know, they've been, um, they've been abused verbally, they've been spat upon. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's the, the amount of attacks on media um, over, you know, during the, the Trump administration, and particularly over the last few months has been horrific. It's, it's, Nothing that I've, you know, I've seen it in other countries, like repressive countries like Russia, but, you know, to see it in the United States is quite shocking. I guess it also just shows like how much of an evolving field journalism is and how much it depends on like the context. Um, and I think that kind of brings me back because you just said that you've done more, you're more of an author, you're more of a teacher now. So you now teach at Columbia and I was just wondering how this transition to working as an educator has maybe affected, has it affected the way that you look at conflicting reporting and safety training? Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question. I look at things, I look at the ethics more, you know, when you're out in the field and you're, you're oftentimes very reactive, particularly, in, you know, when you're covering a war or an ongoing um, rebellion, let's say, you're, you know, you may be working 16 hours a day and you're reacting to events. It's like something's happening here. I got to go cover it. Something's happening here. I've got to go cover it. And particularly because I worked for a news agency, Reuters, for many years, that's like minute by minute reporting. Um, that's 24-7 reporting. I slowed down a bit when I joined um, a newspaper which was the Africa correspondent and then the Moscow correspondent, the Christian Science Monitor. And that was a five day a week newspaper and I didn't have to write every day. So I slowed down a bit then, but now being an educator and an author, I've really slowed down and I can stand back and take the bird's eye view. And I'm thinking more about the ethics of the reporting. Um, and again, about logistics in a way that I probably didn't when I was immersed in it in the field and I just had to get up at three in the morning and get on an airplane. But now I can kind of stand back and look at the meta issues, um, you know, and, it, and, and also try to devise programs. I mean, a lot of what I do is programming. It's coming up with training programs <laughs> or courses, designing courses. So, you know, that requires standing back and looking at the industry as a whole and looking at the, the issues that journalists should be looking at. So it's more theoretical in some way, but nonetheless very practical. What, what would you say are the, the key things that you try to imprint on your students? Like if you could name yeah. like the top three things that they need to think about when they go into the field, what would they be? Yeah, a great question. Um, first of all, you, you have to rely on facts. You have to back up what you do. You have to be cautious. Um, number two, you have to protect your sources. You're being utterly irresponsible if you um, put sources in danger. And these are the three things when I'm talking about with covering conflict. I mean, there are other wider issues. Um, the third thing we, is you've got to prepare. You always have to think about the worst case scenario and then plan 
to either avoid it or mitigate it. And, um, you know, I recently came out with a book in May, which is sort of a manual of all my safety advice. It's called How to Drag a Body and Other Safety Tips You Hope to Never Need. And the, the, the through line in the entire book is preparation, preparation, preparation. Think about the worst thing that could happen and plan backwards so that it doesn't or that it won't be too bad. You know, make sure you have a contingency plan. And, you know, it's, it's particularly critical. I mean, the training I'll be doing over the next few days is that, you know, if you're planning to cover the inauguration, what's the worst thing that can happen? How can you guard against it? Do you need certain tactics? Do you need certain gear? What's your communication plan? Do you have a lawyer lined up? Have you spoken to the Capitol Police and the National Guard? Who's going to watch your back? These are the kind of questions that people should look at in in the coming week. And this book you wrote before Corona, but is it true that you had a chapter dedicated to pandemics and that it was taken out because your editor said it was too freaky or something? Uh, there was a section on it, not a full chapter, but yeah, mm. I mean, at the time, and my editor was absolutely right. It, it, you know, I, I was writing about covering Ebola, and you know, it, it, who would have ever thought the Corona? virus would happen. I mean, it, it was beyond, I mean, we're not epidemiologists. I think, you know, your average person, your average editor in no way anticipated that we'd be walking around with masks and, you know, a quarter of a million people would be dead and, you know, hospitals in LA would not have any more beds for, for patients. I mean, it, it was inconceivable. So I don't blame the editor in any way. In the case of something like COVID, which we didn't really predict, how does that change the way you assess and mitigate a situation and your planning and your preparation when it's something that we really haven't seen before? Well, the thing is, I did see it with Ebola. I mean, it wasn't on this kind of scale and people saw it with SARS and MERS. And so the first thing you do, again, is fact-based. Look at the scientific information that's out there. Talk to medical professionals, for instance. Um, when covering Ebola, um, what was it, 2014, I think it was, or 2011, whenever it was, it was kind of in the teens. Um, some journalists went out with hazmat suits, and that was actually not a wise thing to do, because when you took off the hazmat suit, you could actually infect yourself with what was on the outside of it. So again, if those journalists had spoken to scientists and medical professionals, like um, Médecins Sans Frontières that were actually working on, in clinics with Ebola, then they would have gotten information on what the right gear was. And you know what the right gear was? It was knee-high rubber welly boots and um, hand sanitizer and just keep a distance from people six to nine feet. That's all you needed to do. So you didn't need all this fancy gear. So again, you know, go to the... Go to Fauci, go to the peop go to the CDC, go to the people who actually understand epidemics and pandemics and get information from them as to how you should be covering this. And also the other thing you I mean, people were making it up as they went along with the pandemic, but there are certain sources of information that are trusted for journalists in terms of safety. One of the most paramount ones is the Committee to Protect Journalists. So they were putting out wonderful, fantastic advisories for the entire international global journalistic community about what measures they should take, journalists should take when they're going out reporting on the pandemic.
I like how you say to to get the facts and kind of get information on the ground level. And before, when you were talking about something like the recent riots at Capitol Hill, you were saying like, did you talk to to the National Guard? Did you talk to the Capitol Police? How do you go about doing that in a country where you may not have contacts on the ground? And how do you build up that kind of trust with people? Well, you yeah, you shouldn't do reporting if you don't have contacts. <laughs> like some of the worst things that have happened to journalists with ISIS or in Somalia, for instance, you know, people were taken hostage is they, they just did not have access to information. They kind of stumbled into the situation without doing the preparation. And that harkens back to your question before about, you know, one of the main takeaways and lessons that I impart to people is do your preparation. Don't go into a situation if you're not prepared. And so, you know, for instance, what journalists are doing now, having learned from this horrific example of what happened with the Capitol um, riots, they're now thinking about how they would cover the inauguration. Now they're looking forward, they're looking at what happened there and they're evaluating what they can do now moving forward. With the thinking about the worst case situations, you've previously written about, you know, the potential, like the risk of sexual assault, uh, especially for female conflict reporters. So what are like, what is this impact? Like, is there an impact on, you know, women as not just women, but also reporters? And how, how does it change the way that they might observe situations and report it? Is it positive? Is it a, like, can it at all be positive? Or yeah. is it just clearly a negative influence, this added risk? Um, it doesn't make our job easier, <laughs> yeah. but I, again, a big part of my training, and I was definitely a pioneer in this, partially because when the safety training industry began, there were virtually no women doing it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, you know, there are certain, I mean, I, I, in no way do I want to blame the victim or the survivor in this case, but, you know, there are steps that women can take to try to mitigate the risk. And one would be, don't go out alone, have somebody with you because the risk of rape is always greater if you're alone, because you're more vulnerable. Don't go to isolated areas with somebody who is not fully trusted. Um, oftentimes it's really good to report with a male. Um, it, it, he kind of appears to be like a bodyguard. I, when I would go into very dodgy remote situations, I usually would bring a male photographer with me. Like when I researched my penultimate book, not the last one, um, I nearly all my travels were with male videographers or photographers who, you know, they, they could serve, they could not only take good pictures, but they could serve as a bodyguard and a deterrent. Um, another thing you want to do is um, make very clear if, you, if your source is, is acting in a very inappropriate way, try to shut it down at the beginning. We also, in our training, we teach people how to break very simple chokeholds, um, how to de-escalate a situation before it gets out of control, to rely on your instincts. So there are steps you can take. It doesn't mean you can guard yourself 100% from assault, but it, it's a way of thinking to be constantly aware of where the situation is going and to try to be able to extract yourself or not even get into it to begin with. And how do you ensure when you're in that constant state of predicting the worst case, scenario, worst case scenario, that that doesn't turn into a heightened sense of anxiety that stops you from doing your job? That's such a good question. You know, actually, it has the reverse effect. It actually gives you more confidence 
there's nothing more freaky than going into a violent situation and feeling that you don't have any control. But if you've come up with a safety plan and you've thought things, things through and you've actually had training, you're going to feel more confident. For instance, we, do, we, we offer medical training. You know, one of the biggest fears that a lot of journalists have is they're going to be maimed, they're gonna lose their sight, they're gonna be shot, they're gonna die. But if you have medical training, then first of all, you know how to treat your colleagues, your colleagues know how to treat you. So already your chances of dying or being in, or seriously impaired for the rest of your life or have already been mitigated. Um, another thing might be, um, you know, going into a riot situation. If you know where you should stand in the crowd, if you've got the right gear, for instance, a, um, a skateboard helmet, if you've got um, a gas mask for tear gas, you're already going to feel more confident because you've worked out an exit plan of running away um, and you, you have gear that will protect you from being hurt. So it actually makes you more confident. I know it seems counterintuitive, but it's actually very empowering to actually go there psychologically and come up with a plan because a plan is a course of action. You're not a passive victim. You're actually doing something proactively. And this is what you, um, you emphasize a lot in, in the latest book that you mentioned, how to drag a body and other safety tips you hope to never need. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering if I could ask you a question about that, because you obviously cover a lot of, you know, emergencies and dangers covering things like natural disasters and school shootings and cyber attacks situations that are all very serious but somehow your book is so funny as well and you have like that personal touch i was just wondering why did you choose to write in such a humorous tone like or, like at times humorous anyways yeah um, well it's funny because I, I heard your voice kind of laughing a little bit when you read the title out <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean, it's the thing, I guess that's part of my defense mechanism, which is gallows humor. And you find that a lot with soldiers. You certainly find it with foreign correspondents and people that cover conflict. You find it with doctors. You find it with emergency, um, you know, um, responders. You find it in firemen. You find it in police. I mean, when you're exposed to a lot of really stressful and very gory stuff, if you don't have a sense of humor, you're really doomed. <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm, I, I, I came from a family where, people, you know, my grandparents survived the, the pogroms in Russia, you know, they came here as refugees, like fleeing violence. My father had, uh, you know, quite a, shall we say, life altering um, experience in, in World War II and the aftermath. And so, you know, my family, people just dealt with really gory, horrible things with jokes, with, with gallows humor. And um, it's a great coping mechanism. It really is. And the thing is, the thing is, yeah, this stuff is pretty awful. But if you make people laugh, it it seems more normalized. And also, I want—I didn't want the book to like freak people out. I wanted it to be like a conversation over a drink or maybe a couple drinks. Um, but I wanted it to be entertaining because nobody wants to read about, you know, losing a finger. But if you make it funny while you're imparting the information of what to do if you're finger gets separate from your body. And by the way, the answer is don't put it in a Ziploc bag with ice. Just put it in a Ziploc bag. Um, your, your finger is not an oyster. Don't put it on ice. So in other words, if you, if you kind of couch things with a bit of humor, it's less freaky and it also makes it fun to read. So the person will continue through the book, you know, hopefully, you know, go from chapter to chapter. Uh, yeah, I think that's the beauty, I think, of what you've been doing is that you've 
you've sort of branched out from just focusing on journalism to the general public. And I suppose the humorous tone sort of helps with that. And thank you for the advice with the finger as well. <laughs> I, I like what Emily just said about going from journalists to the general public, and then you also do safety training for media organizations. And I was wondering how your approach to this, to the information you provide changes as you go from demographic to demographic, or if it changes at all. The actual essence of the training doesn't. Um, what we focus on with journalists is, is collection of information and dissemination of information. And within that comes some ethics as well. Um, protection of sources. That's not something that the general public really cares about. So when it's information-based, it's, it's media-oriented. But the safety tips of like, what, what do you do if you see a pipe bomb? What do you do if there's an active shooter? What do you do if suddenly a peaceful protest turns not peaceful? That, that general, very technical advice um, is applicable for anybody and that won't change. What would be your biggest advice or biggest piece of warning to anybody looking to start a career in conflict reporting? Get training. <laughs> <laughs> Moral of the story. <laughs> Perfect, simple to the point. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. You well, guys are such great. You're such great interviewers. I mean, this has been an absolute delight and you've asked such wonderful questions. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to answer them, Judith. No, it's been an absolute delight. And I wish you luck in this, you know, in the months ahead. Hopefully you can get vaccinated. Are you on You're you're in Britain, so it's full lockdown, right? Or, or not? Yeah, it's full lockdown yeah. right now. Yeah, well, I wish you luck. I mean, it's it's, you know, you were asking about emotional stress covering violence. I mean, I think it's, there's just emotional stress just getting through this damn pandemic, you know, it's a very stressful yeah. time. So I wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you. You too. <laughs>